was something kind of country honky tonk. I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> well, it's stereotype cast uh, Texas here. So this is the part where I'll find, I'll try to find something a little more sophisticated for you. <laughs> so I'm here with, with Dave Lintner. It's, is it Monday? It indeed it is, yes. Monday night. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually, this is by far, as I mentioned when we walked in, this is the best, the best locale so far. I've been in public libraries, I've been on fields, I've been in boxes. Well, Here I am in a conference room at your office. This is yeah, nice. I don't really know what to say to that, but thank you. No, no, that's <laughs> fantastic. I, I, was, I, I forgot to finish the story when uh, Jeremy Platt and I were together. Right. We were in a public library. And if you listen to the entire episode, um, right at the very end, uh, uh, a security guard comes in and chases us out. Oh, <laughs> just one look at Jeremy and uh, that's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I generally start all of these the same way, which is how did you find lacrosse or how did lacrosse find you, right? Um, you know, you've got a, a lot of lacrosse history and I'm not going to pretend to know all, all of it, but I know you've got a lot of it. Um, so I suspect we could spend the next six hours just talking about your history of lacrosse, but I absolutely want to dig into that, find out about your personal history with lacrosse, where you started, when you started, why and how you started. Um, and then I, I, I think, if I remember my history from Donnelly, you played men's league here like in the, in the early 80s? Is that uh, correct? Not quite that long ago, but uh, yeah, so uh, I found lacrosse or lacrosse found me. I grew up in Camillus, you know, a suburb of uh, Syracuse, uh, where West Genesee you know, High School is, which is a you know, pretty well-known uh, high school program. And I found lacrosse because um, at the time, considering that I graduated from high school in 1978, just to give you an idea, but I was in sixth grade when... Uh, uh, I discovered lacrosse mainly because my best friend's brother was a, a all-county defenseman for West Genesee at a time when they won the Syracuse Regional um, sectional title uh, every year. Um, and so basically lacrosse was what the athletes did. You know, in the, um, in the you know, 70s, the only people that played baseball up in Camillus were the ones that got cut from the lacrosse teams. And so it, it was kind of it's very different than uh, than here. Uh, but when my best friend's big brother was playing and we would go to his games and then, uh, you know, like was the norm in that era, you, you, when there was a halftime or timeout, you know, kids would run out onto the field and shoot, you know, and act like we were totally badass. And uh, that was really how I started. And you know, fifth and or excuse me, about sixth grade, started playing at my middle school. Uh, and up through my high school at, uh, at West Genesee. Was there, was, was there enough, to, and this is a topic that I talk about a lot with people, right? Especially here in Houston, is just the, the sheer density or lack of density of lacrosse players, right? So, you know, where you grew up, was there enough density of lacrosse players that it was, there were legitimate pickup games in the neighborhood and, 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 and things going on in the neighborhood with your friends on a pretty regular basis, or was organized lacrosse really the, the first and only opportunity to play it was a kind of in tandem you know where there's you know the the seventh grade team at my middle school we had maybe 30 kids um similarly on the eighth grade team but in the neighborhood i lived in a small neighborhood and so there were maybe only five or six other kids that played lacrosse in my general age group uh in my neighborhood but at my best friend's neighborhood there was probably another 
10 or 15 kids. And back then, you know, we had yards that weren't fenced in. So, you know, you'd pick up, um, you'd, well, I can remember clearly taking a, you know, a picnic table, standing it up, and then putting T-shirts on the corners of the table. And that was the goal. You had to hit the T-shirts. And if you didn't, the ball bounced right back at you. Um, and then we'd play three-on-three, uh, two-on-two. Uh, if we had enough kids, then you'd, you'd carry on into the neighbor's yard, too. You don't get two picnic tables because there were no fences. And you know, people didn't care if you were running up and down you know, the various backyards. You know, it was just a continuous swath of grass. Um, and so between that and having wall ball contests on the chimney you know, at your house, um, you, then uh, you, know, you always had a stick in your hand and a ball in the stick, and there was always somebody else to play with. Yeah, that's awesome. That's that's something we miss around here, right? The, you know, every yes. neighborhood's got a, a spattering of one or two kids, right? It feels like, and there's not that critical mass for for pickup games and, and stuff like that. Oh, absolutely, and also, you know, it's not unique to lacrosse, but the culture of youth sports is now youth sports as run by adults. It's not uh, free play. Um, and that's you know, that's the same with soccer, baseball, softball, uh, as it is with lacrosse. Yeah, yeah. So, the in the town you grew up in, did you, did you was there such a thing as organized youth lacrosse? I mean, you know, if you were a fourth or fifth grader, were there were there organized teams and organized lacrosse or not? No, no, absolutely not. You know, the uh, there was the school teams, and then in the summer, uh, this I guess I was in high school when the first real summer league started and it was actually uh it was at a was just a town park called Shove uh Shove Park and we played on um essentially tennis courts where they took the posts and the nets out and there were I don't remember three or four tennis courts side by side you put a hockey goal at each end and you signed up for the for the summer league um and then you just got randomly assigned to a team and uh, it, it, it's funny if you look back at who I was playing with is just some at that time I guess some lame high school freshman. Um, you, you look at the rosters, and it was been it became a who's who of Division One, not just Division One players, but Division One All Americans. You know, if you look at the uh, you know the alumni of that league, and then it started drawing people uh, from around who were playing at Syracuse, Hobart, Cornell. Uh, you know, easy relatively easy driving distance that would show up on summer summer weeknights and play uh, six-on-six lacrosse inside uh, what was essentially box, um, but but uh, not a formal rink. You know, it was these tennis courts with the chain-link fences around them. So Yeah, when, I, uh, when John Proudy and I were talking, yeah. he, he made some quip about how all the teams and coaches and organizations nowadays feel like they've, they've found something new. Mm-hmm. Like box on a tennis court or box outdoors or right you know so, and you know, he's like hell we've been doing that for 40 years right, <laughs> right? back where I'm right. from <laughs> yeah yeah exactly and, and you know there was a there was a certain freedom you know with that league even though it was organized by the high school coach Mike Messer um, but he basically just provided the the framework to sign up pay your dues and then the teams were formed randomly and self-governed you know just by you know, player captains. Uh, there were no there were no adults uh, involved, and so you were in, you had to decide 
who's playing offense, who's playing defense, what your offense was going to be, who was going to be the goalie that night. Because as you know, club lacrosse, the, the limiting factor is goalies. And yep. so, uh, you know, sometimes I'd have the pads on. So it was uh, just get out there and play. Yeah, uh, guys, we were talking about there's so many common threads in these discussions. Mike Brand talked about the same thing uh, growing up. And, and one thing he said that kids, he felt kids miss nowadays when I talked with him was in that self-organization, right? That unstructured play that you just described, there's a certain amount of dispute resolution that has to occur, right? Plenty, and, <laughs> plenty of disputes and most of them got resolved one way or another. Yeah. Right? And that's yeah. something kids miss out on nowadays, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm curious, I, I've got to ask before I forget, even though I did write it down, um, Platt and Centra. Platt went to West Genesee. Yes, he did. And Centra's family is from Syracuse-ish, right? Right. Did you know those families at this point? I did not. You know, I, I, uh, I graduated from high school in 1978 and uh, went to Cornell. Actually, I was recruited as a soccer player at Cornell and then uh, ended up walking on the lacrosse team. It's a long story, which I'm happy to share if you want, but um, ended up playing for four years at Cornell and then moved on. Um, and actually, uh, it was really a, a distinct pleasure running across Platt here. You know, another West Genesee alum. We were, were separated, I don't know by how many years, but it's, it's a significant number. And uh, uh, it was totally cool to find uh, not only a Syracuse guy, um, but a West Genesee guy um, you know, down here. And I think he and I share enough personality traits, whether it's you know, regionally founded or breed, you're bred by the coach um, or just coincidental. I don't know. So was your, I, I assume you and Jeremy have sat down and compared notes to some extent about your high school experience. Despite that disparity in age, was that high school lacrosse experience pretty similar? It was a, very much so, very much so. Now, I, I was at West Genesee when Coach Messere first started at West Genesee. Uh, Bill Warmoth was the coach before him. Uh, and Messer uh, succeeded him, and but the the culture was uh, infused within the lacrosse program by Coach Messer and persisted until um, it was either this past year or the year before when he retired. Um, and from talking to people, you know, subsequent alumna, um, that culture was very uniform over those years, which I think eventually. Uh, became an outdated culture, uh, you know, an anachronism. Um, but yeah, it was, Coach Messier was nothing if not consistent. How? What? What accounts for that? That consistency over such a long period of time with him. I think some of it was willpower. Some of it was the era. Um, you know, he he showed up looking fresh out of the Marine Corps. Uh, was in his mid thirties when he started coaching uh, when I was there. Um, and because there was a harshness to his culture, um, combined with the desire of every teenage athlete to want to play for West Genesee lacrosse, he was able to sustain um, a, a culture, a program that was very strict, very rigid, um, simply because of the demand you know, was there? I mean, so many things in uh, in our world are supply and demand, and every kid wanted to play lacrosse for West Genesee because it was such a successful program. 
Um, and so then it just became a, a momentum thing. You know, it, it worked, it won, uh, it, it taught you know, uh, the, the character traits of you know, discipline, hard work, um, respect for authority, respect for your teammates, respect for the game, that uh, parents in what was mostly a blue-collar area uh, bought into it. And so there was never there was never a criticism of Coach Masser by people outside the program, especially a parent um, or a kid. Um, let's say that was very rare. Um, and because it was successful, and parents, I think, respected what it taught their sons, um, it just flourished. Which, in that situation, which came first, the chicken or the egg, right? Was was it successful because of him, or was it successful when he when he arrived and it just like you said there was some amount of momentum right the, the pump had already been primed um, there was enough density of players right that wanted to go play at West Genesee that it was going to continue to be successful anyway. I think it was more the latter. Um, uh, coach Mormoth, uh, who was my best friend's brother's coach, um, won five straight sectional. Uh, championships. As a matter of fact, I remember that when I was in seventh or eighth grade. I can remember the the drive for five was the uh, the, the slogan for the West Genesee High School program, and that was with the coach before Misser. Uh, so then Misser took over um, the year or two following, and it just it just continued. And if anything, it accelerated. He did have a have a charisma to him, much like a drill sergeant in the Marines might, um, an intimidating charisma. Uh, but it drew it drew the kids in. In that era, um, that that was something that people weren't afraid of or didn't criticize. When do you think? Um, when was the end of that era at West Genesee? Well, you know, they you know they used to win the section and maybe the state every year. Um, the section pretty much every year. Uh, or at least the majority of years uh, in the state were always in the hunt, you know, for the um, you know, for the New York State Championship. But over the last decade, I'd say culturally, um, you know, Coach Masser, uh, his approach um, just didn't work, you know, with the with the kids. There was still an influx of talent, uh, just based on the area and how popular. The sport was, and the brothers wanting to emulate their brothers and neighbors near their neighbors. Um, but within the last decade, it would really fluctuate, and uh, it was it was painful as a as an alum to see you know, Coach Messier's last game in the in the sectional playoffs. Uh, they got blown out, and it was it was ugly on a number of number of aspects and a terrible way for him to end uh, you know a hall of fame career you mentioned um once you once you got into college you were playing soccer originally were you in in high school were you balancing soccer and lacrosse i played uh, three sports in uh, in high school so um it didn't seem like a balance at the time this this was not that this was an era really pre-single sport specialization. Uh, and, um, you know, with, with the weather in the winter, you had to play either hockey or basketball or maybe indoor track. Um, and then fall was either soccer or football, and spring was lacrosse or baseball, and 
that was it. I mean, there wasn't really a choice to play the other sport during that season, nor really an incentive. You know, um, you know, living in this area, in in Houston, I find the small school athletes to be very much the I play whatever sport is in season type athlete. Whereas the bigger school athletes, um, the athletes at the bigger schools tend to you know, trend toward more single sport specialization. But even though I was at a 5A high school, no one was a single sport uh, athlete. You know, everybody played whatever sport was that season. We're doing pretty good because we're like 20 minutes or so into this, and I've, I've, I've stayed the course, but now I'm going to veer off course. I apologize. All right. <laughs> the, the, the SPC rules, right, that dictate there are seasons, right, ends, beginnings to ends in the, right, to every right. season. What, what role do those rules play in what you just described? Well, or is it, or is it the kids? It's the right? kids. Okay. You, you, I, I, you, you, my career, you know, it's, I'm, I'm in the world of sports medicine. And so I see, um, you know, youth athletes, adult athletes, professional athletes, and the, the youth athletes, um, by the time they get to high school, they're already single sport. Um, you know, typically baseball, sometimes basketball. Uh, some football, you know, at the, at the more competitive high schools, you know, there's football season and then there's off-season football and where they're lifting and right. you're working out and spring football and seven on, you know, seven, on seven in the summers. And um, so football in Texas is actually uh, a year-round sport if you want it to be. Uh, the SPC rules um, are are interesting by basically compelling the athletes to play different sports or at least not play one sport through their school all year. They can play soccer all year round. They can play baseball all year round. It's just outside their school. Right. Sorry, I tend to get off on tangents. That's all right. <laughs> See, that's the beauty of lacrosse. Lacrosse is interpretation and reaction. Uh, yeah, so it's very fluid. So. I want to go back to uh, high school career. You had mentioned going into college. You originally were going off to college to play soccer. Yes. So were you were you recruited as a as a soccer player going off to college? Yeah. So you know, keep in mind you were talking the late seventies, and so recruiting consisted of getting a letter in the mail. You know, maybe the coach knew your coach in whatever sport. Uh, maybe he would just heard of your team. Um, it was not uncommon at West Genesee lacrosse for the entire team to get letters from a college on the same day. It was the same letter. You know, Dear West Genesee Wildcat, we'd love to have you play at Hamilton College, you know, that, that sort of stuff. Um, you know, there was no uh, you know, televised lacrosse. There was no Internet, of course. Um, so it was basically word of mouth and reputation and networking at the coach level. Um, I was a solid player at West Genesee, uh, but you know, understand that my two, uh, well, I switched positions my senior year, uh, played, uh, switched to defense my senior year, only got to play because um, the guy ahead of me on the depth chart, the third defenseman, uh, Jeff McCormick, who was a uh, All-American at Syracuse multiple years, uh, he got hurt. 
And so they needed a guy. And so they took me, who I just picked up a long stick maybe three or four weeks earlier. They throw me out there, second game of the season. Um, and you know, I got to keep playing. And then uh, Mark Wenham, uh, multiple All-American, two-time All-American in high school and multiple All-American in Syracuse, um, he got suspended. So I got to stay on the field, purely fortuitous. This is for lacrosse. Uh, for soccer, it was different. I was one of the better players on the team. We had a, we had a good team, uh, and Cornell was only, I don't know, 70 miles down the road. Um, and so um, I was recruited. They're not a hard recruit, like, oh, we have to have you, but, oh, great, you can get into Cornell. Your academics are good enough. Uh, sounds like you're a good soccer player. Why don't you come play? That, that, that was recruiting in that era. Right. And so uh, yeah, I, I played soccer there for less than a month. Uh, it's a fall sport. Um, back east, uh, I played for less than a month, and it became clear that um, my playing of soccer, like it was a lacrosse game, uh, was did not fit with the uh, the way that Cornell played at the time. They were a highly ranked, you know, ranked in the teens in Division One uh, soccer player in the or soccer team, and the players were much more skilled than I, and I was considered to be a bit of a ruffian, and so it became clear that I wasn't going to fit. Story, you know, it was. Uh, one of the most successful collegiate coaches of, well, of any era, but of uh, that era with two national championships. Um, Richie is, was famous for recognizing people, just knowing who they are. And uh, I had met Richie when he was recruiting my best friend a year and a half prior. And we actually had a campus visit where he was recruiting my friend, Don Lutzelman, um, out of West Genesee. And I accompanied him just you know, for a, a fun weekend, you know, I wasn't being recruited at all. I just went with my friend and shook hands with Richie in the lacrosse office and then excused myself while he and my friend had a chat. And my friend ended up not going there. Don did not uh, go to Cornell, and uh, I did um, and for unrelated reasons. And then after I stopped playing uh, soccer, I was walking across the, uh, the arts quad there it's a big school, a lot of land, and I'm, I'm walking across the art squad and just carrying my backpack, you know, and um, you, when I had met Coach Moran, my hair was essentially a crew cut because that's what Coach Masser demanded. You, you actually would measure the length of our hair in the late 70s. This was like Grateful Dead hippie era, and you know, we had to you know, have our hair you know, above our ears, off our collar, that sort of thing in high school, and that's what I had looked like when I met him. And so here it was, you know, two years later, my hair's grown out, you know, I think I'm cool, you know, college kid, 1978, you know. And uh, I just happened to walk past Coach Moran in the art squad, and he stopped and turned around and goes, Littner. And I was stunned. I knew who he was, obviously. Right. And uh, he uh, looks at me and goes, I hear you're not playing soccer anymore. Fall ball started yesterday. Why don't you come on out? And so... You know, naive college kid. I was like, okay. And so I went and <laughs> a couple days late to fall ball and uh, he let me walk on. And uh, as I tell my kids, you know, he, he gave a walk on a chance and changed my life. Hey, that's an awesome story.
That's so it's inevitable I cross things out. Back on track. Sorry about that. All right. <laughs> so what years were you at Cornell? I need to reset my clock here. Yeah, so uh, it was a long time ago. So um, my freshman year, well, I graduated from high school in 78. So I was there from um, you know, 78 to 82, graduated in May of 82. And you rattled off some names that some folks might might recognize right. from your high school career. Right. Who are some of the folks that you played with at Cornell that we might recognize? You know, that's, uh, that's a good question. Norm Engelke was on Team USA a couple years. Uh, Woody Jay, Charlie Wood were both All-Americans. Um, in uh, my class, uh, mainly we had uh, our defensemen, Tim Daly, Sam Happel, were both uh, multi-year uh, All-Americans. Um, the Wade Bollinger was um, you know, an All-American attackman, Matt Crawley um, as well. Um, these are all guys from upstate Long Island or Baltimore. You know, the, the non-traditional lacrosse uh, you know, regions didn't exist. You know, really, at least they weren't recognized. Um, so it was, uh, it was an eclectic crew. You know, um, some guys who you just wonder how they survive, and then uh, uh, other guys who are you know, CEOs of engineering companies that you would have heard of. You know, um, it, it's it was really really an amazing group of guys. Um, some guys like Bruce Bruno, um, you know, another multi-year All-American from uh, Long Island. You know, with the Long Island sport coat, you know, the denim jacket and the denim jeans and the boots, and then you know, we flannel shirt guys, and uh, man, it was a, it was a trip. So I'm I'm not going to pretend to know any of the Cornell history from that period. Right. Give me some idea how you did as a team, how you performed as a team over those years that you were there at Cornell. Right. Right. So. Cornell won before I got there. Cornell won the national championship 76-77, was undefeated until the, the, final, the finals and lost the last game to Hopkins in, in 78. And, then, and so I came in the fall of 78. And so that was the standard. Uh, two national championships and a runner-up uh, in the three preceding years. Uh, when I was there, we were, let's see, one year we were 13th. Uh, nationally, that was the, our worst year. My senior year, we lost in the semifinals to North Carolina. We were third. Um, so we were always in the top ten. So a completely different field back then. You know, it was the same teams every year. Right. Um, you know, and there were you know, 10 to 20 you know, outstanding Division One teams, and that was about it, as opposed to the plethora of outstanding Division One teams now. Uh, but we were always in the hunt. Nationally, always won, we won the Ivy League every year. Um, to give you an idea of the change, um, when I was there, Princeton and Yale were guaranteed wins, usually by double digits. Um, things have changed. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So when you when you finished up at Cornell, I'm, I'm, I'm going to assume that you. Well, no, I take that back. Did you were you coaching at all? So maybe maybe while you were in school, did you did you coach at all? Did you coach any 
immediately after Cornell. Did, did coaching fall into your career at any point at this time? Much, much later. I okay. mean, Michael, understand that uh, um, I was pre-med right. when I was there. And um, so I was kind of consumed, you know, with that sort of stuff. Uh, after I graduated, um, I went, uh, went in medical school here in Rochester uh, uh, thereafter and then did my residency in orthopedics. So for literally 10 years, four years of medical school and six years of orthopedic training, I call it my dark period where I don't think I could tell you, well, I know I couldn't tell you who won the national championships, uh, you know, then. Um, I could tell you who the presidents of the United States were, but I couldn't really tell you what was popular in music or TV or film or sports you know, yeah, at just that time. Consumed it was just completely. A, just a blur. Yeah. And so I actually didn't pick up lacrosse or get involved again. I literally did not pick up my stick uh, other than to play catch uh, with uh, the woman that became my wife. Um, uh, other than you know, play catch with her or some other friends. Um, until I moved to Houston in 1991. And so I had really a nine, ten-year period of um, no contact with the game. Uh, I'd go to see Cornell play Syracuse every year. Uh, that was it. Um, and then when I came down here, um, my schedule was a bit lighter than it had been during my training years. And so uh, I was literally looking through the Houston press in newspaper back then we had like there were paper actual paper and I'm flipping through and I see a, an ad for you know club lacrosse come out and play and uh I did and um I brought my stick it literally was 10 years old uh it the head uh while it was fiberglass not wood um but it shattered the first uh, the first time uh the first practice uh, and um, it was interesting, you know, the mix, of, the mix of players where they ranged from like Houston born and bred uh, to uh, guys like uh, Ken First, who was uh, an All-American goalie at Harvard, uh, Peter Short and Robbie Cahill, who were um, you know, All-American players at West Point. Um, there was a there was a real smattering. Uh, Mike Donnelly was there, Peter Marin, Marty Whipple. Uh, if you if you know Marty, you got to yeah. know Marty. Yeah. Um, you know, all Northeastern guys that were transplants, you know, down here. Guys that I played against in college but didn't know it. Um, so and, did you play against Marin in college? I think we might have. I might have been a freshman when he was a senior or something really? like that. Yeah, Ken first um, at Harvard. Uh, he and I overlapped a year or two. Peter Short and Cahill and I played against each other. Yeah. Yep. Wow. It's, it's funny the people today have no idea about the Houston press or what paper is. Right, exactly. <laughs> but the Donnelly told the exact same story. Really? When when he landed here, it was 10 years before that. It was 8081 something like that, I, I think. I, I may have my years off a little bit. He had told the story of hey, he was flipping through the paper, there was mm -hmm. an ad, hey, club lacrosse, and I, I forgot the name of the team he played for. Um it was a bar. It was so. It was the name of a, of a bar. Yeah, the first one I played for was a, was Coors. Yeah, it was sponsored yeah. by the Coors uh, distributorship. So, yeah, it's interesting. That Ten years apart, you have the exact same story. You literally right. were flipping through the paper and you and you found it. Right. right. Yeah. Exactly. That's, so, That's what so it was. What, when you landed here in '91, the the history that Donnelly gave me on men's lacrosse scene here in Houston was like '80 to early '90s, right? So y'all had mm -hmm. some overlap. 
What was your experience with the men's scene here in the you know early and mid '90s? Yeah, so um, it was interesting. There were a couple of Houston teams uh, that had self-sorted into kind of um, really by background, you know, where you were from, you know, what your caliber of play was. Um, the uh, you know, we would play teams from Dallas, teams from Austin, uh, San Antonio, and. Um, my experience was that the team, you could kind of divide it up into thirds. Um, you know, third would be guys who were kind of local, enthusiastic, didn't have the pedigree, um, but you know, were good athletes and really into it. And some of them are pretty solid players. And then we have guys such as you know, Short and Cahill and you know, uh, you know, Doc First, Whipple. Uh, Donnelly, who were from the Northeast, still took it very seriously. And then there was sort of a middle section who looked at club lacrosse as mainly a means to, or a reason to take road trips and you know, party uh, the Saturday night in between the Saturday and Sunday games. Right. Um, and, and then, of course, like a Venn diagram, there's, some, there's overlap between all those groups. <laughs> um, and and it, was, it was really interesting uh, you know, to, to play, again, you know, a very eclectic uh, group. You know, you get guys who are, you know, living week to week, paycheck to paycheck, and guys who were, you know, leaders of corporate finance and, um, you know, a couple doctors and uh, guys like Peter Marin who were, you know, phenomenal players and graduates of Penn and entrepreneurs and, um, and then it was a goalie who would show up wearing Mickey Mouse ears under his helmet. It was, it was all over the map. Uh, but, so, and guys would switch teams from year to year. So you know, one year I'd be chasing Peter Marin around, and other years we'd be on the same team. Uh, it, was, it was really a lot of fun. Was there you – know, one of the things I see, or at least I think I see nowadays, is – you know, what, what I contend to be is maybe a general lack of health of the sport here in Houston right mm -hmm. now. And I see it at all levels, right? So I see it at the men's game. The, the men's game is really suffering right now. Right. Um, you know, participation rates, even at the men's level, are, are, are dropping off, right? So was the, you know, the health or lack of health during that time period any indication of the health of the sport in general in Houston at that point? Or was, there, was the, the, the lacrosse scene just not big enough to really translate the health or lack of it at the men's, uh, the men's level to the high school or youth level. Uh, it's an interesting question. You know, I, I'm I'm familiar with the health or lack thereof of the men's game currently because both of my boys were college lacrosse players, and you know, my older son Michael, who uh, played at Roanoke College and graduated five six years ago, when he tries to play in the men's the men's game here, you know, half the time you don't have enough kids to or enough guys right. to play you, right. know, you might have a scheduled game or oh you it's 10 o'clock on a Sunday or Sunday night you know when the games get to play and or you know, people don't show up or they can't get a field and um, I don't think the the post-collegiate men's uh, lacrosse status in Houston is particularly healthy right now in in the era era when I was playing which was really 91 through I probably played um, till I was roughly 40, maybe, um, so about 2000. Um, the, the men's league was dominated by Northeastern transplants. And so I, I, I look at it as being reflective 
of the economy. You know, the Northeastern economy was, was uh, dying, yeah, and the industry, just heavy industry, and so people were moving to Houston, and you could trace it to the oil boom um, in, the, in the 80s. Uh, and just like Dallas uh, became kind of a second wave of men's lacrosse, you know, if you look at the club level, Houston was dominant for a while when migration from the Northeast was primarily to Houston. But then as the oil uh, boom turned to more of a bust, then that migration period stopped. And uh, finance in Dallas became a big deal. And so all the Princeton, Cornell, Penn, um, you know, Harvard, Yale, you know, the Northeastern guys, a lot of Ivy League guys, yep. obviously, um, were all flowing to Dallas. And uh, hence, you know, they took off, or th that area took off. And frankly, they've been a lot more successful at you know, building at least youth lacrosse. I'm not sure how their men's lacrosse scene is anymore. Yeah, and I, you know, for me, if I'm, I'm looking just at, at men's, in Austin, right? So the tech boom in Austin is pulling right. players to Austin, right? right? From a men's perspective. Right. And you know, talking to Jordan last night at Austin High School, right? He's he's using, and he, he knows, right? He's using that men's scene in Austin to go find his coaches. Oh, exactly. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And you look around, you know, Houston of that era, uh, you know, Peter Laley, you know, uh, Whipple coached for a while, Peter Marin, you know, is, um, uh, Donley, they were guys from that era, Parouti. They were guys that were Eastern transplants, came here for economic reasons, uh, and through love of the game, you would continue to play, or in Parouti's coach, uh, or in Parouti's case, coach and ref. Um, and you decided to give some of their, uh, their time and knowledge and passion back to the game by coaching. So John told a story when he was at Hornets. I think he mm -hmm. just landed at Hornets, and I think someone had talked him into coaching. Right. And the, he, what he described was kind of a parent meeting with him, and he was looking for another coach, and he said, you raised your hand, and something to the effect of, I know a little bit about lacrosse, right? Right, right. That's, a, <laughs> what, that's exactly what, right. What's your recollection of that story? Is that accurate? That's exactly <laughs> right, yeah. So that was the, the very first year of Hilax, you know, the Hilax Hornets, and someone had, had uh, uh, coaxed John into playing. I think it was because his boy Ryan, who's an excellent player at VMI currently, um, Ryan was precocious, but... It, one of the other community programs out near where John lived toward Clear Lake, Texas City, they wouldn't let Ryan play. That, that was, was me. Was that you? No. <laughs> nice, nice. Uh, so it's funny how you know, the, the butterfly effect, you know, because uh, that, that pushed John to drive into Houston, however many miles, to coach and bring his son, who's two years younger than the, than the youngest players otherwise in that program. And, uh, and he was tiny at the time. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so at that initial parent orientation meeting, he was standing up there saying, I, I need help. Anybody that knows anything about lacrosse, if you've played catch, if you know you're anything, I need, uh, I need help. And uh, a couple parents whom, whom I knew and knew they didn't know Jack about the sport, you know, graciously raised their hands, they're willing to help, right, right. in these sports. And uh, my wife's like elbowing me, and I'm like, well, all right, you know, I'm I know a little about, bit about the game, and uh, John and I met you know, that way that night. It was the first time, and uh, you know our stories are intertwined uh, between 
coaching um, the Hornets, which had my son and his son. Um, and then um, you know, John coaching at Episcopal, coaching my son and his son. Right. Um, John uh, coaching the Hurricanes lacrosse program with my son and his son. Um, and John, uh, you know, refing games now in which my sons play. You know, he's he's still uh, around. You, know, John, you know, John can be polarizing. Uh, he's a very strong personality. He's a very strong man, and he, uh, um, I, I look at him as being one of the core fibers of the fabric of lacrosse in Houston. I mean, he's been here forever, and, and he's a certified referee, men's and women's. Uh, he's coached men's and women's. All levels. Um, he's just a hard-nosed Baltimore guy. Uh, yeah, for, for and I've I've said it for years, and I'll continue to say it. For my money, there's there's two coaches in my pantheon of coaches here in the Houston area, and I've been bumping around Houston lacrosse a long time. Pete Marin and John Perron. Yeah, yeah. Right? You, you won't find two better coaches for young men. Oh yeah, yeah, and they're they're very different guys. Yeah, they uh, are. But uh, as far as passion and knowledge, uh, the ability to impart both of those, um, yeah, they're, they're outstanding. Yeah. Was that, so going back to the, the, the question that I foolishly asked you about when you were in medical school about coaching. Yeah, I did not coach. <laughs> yeah. was, was when you raised your hand at that Hornets practice, was that your first official coaching gig? You know, I'm getting old and my memory's failing me, but uh, I did coach when I was in medical school at University of Rochester. I coached, I was their assistant coach um, for it was a Division Three program at the time. Um, I did that one year, it was an unpaid position, um, and it was super frustrating. Um, and so uh, I didn't coach anymore after that. Really? Until the Hornets. I mean, I ran some clinics and that sort of stuff at the very start of Hylax. Uh, but, uh, yeah, nothing, nothing in between. Wow. Right. Yeah. What, um, so I think I first bumped into you with Hurricanes. My son played Hurricanes mm -hmm. back in the day with John. Sure. And, um, where, what was your relationship with Hurricanes? Where did Hurricanes come from? How were they, how were they born? What was your role? Tell me, tell me a little bit about the Hurricanes. Yeah, so... Um, I founded the Hurricanes. Um, my older son, Michael, uh, was at Episcopal. Uh, I've been coached by Donnelly. Um, and he, he, he was wondering if he was good enough to play in college, East, you know, play you know, back, you know, back East. Um, and at the time, as far as I knew, there weren't any um, club programs in Houston that were geared that way to taking players who were wondering, are we good enough to play uh, and really interested in playing in college or at least testing themselves against those that were going to play in college. Um, and so I guess it was the fall of 2009. No, it would have been 2008. Um, I just started the Hurricanes. Uh, I guess, well, more correctly, he started it during the, the prior spring. And he had this idea that, you know, my son wanted to see if he was good enough to play. There wasn't a vehicle to really test it for him or for other Houston kids other than these random showcases that are, you know, out there. Right. Um, and so uh, um, I, uh, I recruited coaches 
that had, uh, my, my requirement was they had to be uh, recent coaches. They had to not be coaching at a high school because as you know, Houston lacrosse is very parochial, very feudal, very, I don't want my kids playing for your team. You know, I'm going to coach my kids, you know, that sort of thing. Um, and so I wanted uh, really like a non-sectarian program. So I recruited uh, local players who were had Division One experience. And so Drew Webb had played at Cornell. Uh, Jim Weiss uh, from Lamar High School uh, played at Princeton. Uh, and uh, Travis Bryan had played at Syracuse. And so they were roughly the same age. Uh, Jim and Drew were best friends. I recruited them to be our inaugural our inaugural coaches. And during the, the prior spring, I went to just a boatload of high school lacrosse games. And uh, I would literally watch the game and I'd identify a player that I thought was good. And then I'd just turn to the parents in the stands and say, Who's, whose kid is number 22 on the blue team? And mom or dad would raise their hand. I'd go up and sit next to him and start talking to him about my vision of your son looks like he can play. If he'd be interested in playing, seeing if he could play at the next level, come join us. And so we, we had kids from uh, the Woodlands and eventually from new programs like Magnolia, Episcopal, St. John's, Strake, um, Clear Lake, uh, basically almost every program around you. These kids would drive down into um, at West, U, West University Elementary. I uh, got a field there, um, and these kids would come and practice, and uh, then um, you practice through late summer into the fall. I took them up to Rochester, played in a tournament there, took them to Baltimore, uh, and they started winning games. And uh, that, that was Houston Hurricane Lacrosse right there. And then um, as time went on, we grew it down. We actually started with kids who were in high school, varsity level players, and then grew it down. Instead of from bottom up, we grew it from top down. Um, and at its peak, we had about 150 kids in the team or in the, in the program. Um, would take you know five or six teams to these Baltimore tournaments in the summer and run summer and fall and and, and so on, and um, it's it's probably uh, um, taken down now. But on the Hurricanes website, you know the mission statement was essentially to give kids that thought they wanted to play at the next level or play against those that would a chance to compete, and. Um, because there was really no other program that was serious about that sort of thing, we drew kids from all over. And it was interesting, you know, Michael, if you look at the roster, the first roster, uh, it was essentially all of the all-district players from Houston or close to it, and more than half of them went on to play collegiate lacrosse at Division One or three uh, levels. Um, it was uh, it was successful. And then the number two on the mission statement was to uh, increase the foundation of Houston youth lacrosse, basically build the base of the pyramid. Right. And it was uh, very successful in that. And you, you know, these programs that are out there now, uh, the large majority of them didn't exist when we started the Hurricanes. Um, but there, I think the Hurricanes was a, a, one of the sparks to to. To get the um, you know, the Team 91s and you know, the other you know, programs that are quite successful now, 
uh, to get them started. There was no program out towards Siena you know, back then. There was no Clear Lake you know, high-level club you know, program. There was no you know, sci-fair. There was no um, uh, you know, what was Dallas Select but came down to Houston. I'm blanking on the Stick um, Star. Stick Star, yeah. 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 Uh, Stick Star was up in Dallas, but it wasn't in Houston. Um, you know, there weren't other options. Well, now there are. There are a lot of really good options now. Um, but it, it was just a, uh, just a different time and just you know, the start of something. Yeah, I love the fact that you, you you built that first team, right, almost player by player, right, Lit going out and finding yeah. these, watching this lacrosse and finding these boys yeah. just one it, at a time. Yeah, right? it wasn't almost player by player. It was exactly player by player. And then the second, uh, the second you know, version of that team, it was by uh, really by referral where, you know, we wanted kids uh, who were – you know, good kids uh, who you know, were you know, basically gentlemen, gentlemen off the field, but fierce competitors on the field. That's what we wanted. And then we wanted uh, those families to refer others of, of that sort. And that's how it grew, you know, how it grew over the first few years. Yeah, it's awesome. The, um, the, the top down, it's interesting because, you know, every, everybody tries to build these teams whether they're clubs or high schools or, or whatever they are from the, from the bottom up. Right. That's kind of the conventional right. wisdom, right? My experience at Friendswood was, was, was top down. Friendswood started a, a varsity team, mm -hmm. built a JV team, built a middle school team, and then built their way down, right? Right, right. And it wasn't necessarily by design, right, in Friendswood's case, similar to you, right? There was a coach whose kid was high school age, wanted to play, started a team, and it just started – from the top down, and by all accounts, was wildly successful, right? And then the same with the Hurricanes, right? As you said, you started at the top, and, and whoops, and built your way down, right? 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 Yeah, it's interesting that there's kind of defies that conventional wisdom that oh, you've got to start with a bunch of second graders, right? Right, and I think now um, that's probably that it's probably more true now than it was then, um, but also you, we were. Um, the Hurricanes was, was a not-for-profit, run-by-volunteers um, program. You know, now, uh, you, a lot of these clubs are not not-for-profit or are for-profit entities um, or uh, have different goals. And so nothing wrong with that. It's just, right. just, a, different, just a different approach. Um, yeah, but it was uh, – I, I still have – um, a picture of the first Hurricanes team where we came in second place in a tournament in Baltimore. And it was just the usual, like, hey, everybody stand in front of the goal. We're going to take a picture. And uh, one, of the, one of the moms uh, blew it up you know, for me. It's like you know, a three-foot by five-foot poster board picture that I still have uh, of you know, a bunch of kids who... Um, you know, went out and you know, kicked some ass, and you know, played at uh, you know at West Point, and you know, high-level Division three teams, and some of the guys played at uh, like Texas A&M and UT club teams, uh, Merchant Marine Academy. Uh, you know, just, just the the number of Division one, Division three team team players uh, was more than half the more than half the team, and uh, it was uh, it was. Really a blast to see kids from all around, outside the Beltway, inside the Beltway, playing together. You know, now it's much more uh, regional. 
um, right. as uh, as you know, lacrosse has grown its base uh, in Houston. But uh, yeah, it was kids from all different schools, um, and I think part of the reason that was successful for a while is that we had coaches who were not affiliated with any particular school. Is Let's face it, most coaches uh, think they're a great coach and they want their kids to be coached by them and learn their methodology and terminology and they don't really want them being corrupted by that guy over at that other school. And so um, you know, back then you, when we had these three guys, you know, Drew Webb and Jim Weiss and Travis Bryan, they weren't affiliated with any other programs or any other schools. So uh, at least conceptually, it was a nonpartisan, uh, nonpartisan outfit. Yeah, what are the chances of trying to pull that off now, right? Oh, it doesn't work now. Yeah. Yeah, and in, 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 I don't know that it even should. I mean, in an ideal uh, world, maybe, but, um, you know, the, the reality is for these programs to work, whether it's Iron Horse or 3D or, uh, you, know, you know, whatever, the, the coaches drive the players toward their own programs. Right. For a variety of reasons, uh, some of it coaching, some of it uh, perception of quality, some of it is uh, financial. Um, you know, this, for youth lacrosse to grow, for these programs to really exist, there has to be a uh, you know, an incentive you know, to, to push kids in one direction or another. And uh, I don't begrudge it. I don't think it's wrong. Uh, it just wasn't the hurricane way. What's the the... And I apologize because I've been out of the loop on the most of the off-season teams. So outside of 3D, it feels like lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. What's what's the current state of the Hurricanes? Right. So it's ten years on now, right? Right. Right. So the Hurricanes have uh, uh, folded. Okay. I'm trying to think of the best word. Um, we still have a you know, legal infrastructure in place. You know, a non a nonprofit you know, entity exists. And that's the entity that runs the uh, sevens for seven tournament. Um, but the uh, uh, we as a program just had too much trouble getting players. So yeah. it goes back to the what you're talking about, right? Which is the that kind of territorialism or whatever you want to call it with coaches, right. right? Right. Yeah. I mean, but not just that. You know, and if if you live in Siena and there's a great program in Siena, why would you drive into Central Houston? You know, if you live out you know, toward the Woodlands or Kingwood, why would you drive all the way down into Houston you know, where the Hurricanes were based and play for Iron Horse? You know? um, you, so you, you keep in mind that number two on the mission statement was to build the foundation of uh, Houston lacrosse. Um, and I, you, as I said, I, I do think that the Hurricanes helped spawn the development of all these you know, community programs right. outside the Beltway. There's, there's way more people living outside the Beltway than in. And so uh, you know, while it ultimately led to the demise of the hurricane program, the development of all these uh, community programs and clubs uh, is actually, I think, partly the result of the hurricanes um, and part of their success. You know, when you know, mission number one, get kids interested to play in college. Well, at least for those original number of teams, it worked. Right. Uh, help build the base of Houston lacrosse as far as volume of programs, volume of players. It worked. You know, not you know, to be clear, the Hurricanes don't take credit for development of all these programs. But as far as growing the interest of lacrosse, I mean, we had 150 kids, you know, and we're turning kids away. 
so uh, we, we helped start some momentum for the youth stuff in uh, you know, 3D and Iron Horse and Team 91 and you know, these others. You're, uh, um, I mean, you talked with Nick you know, recently. He's got a program going, and you know, there's other smaller programs around. Right. Um, you know, those didn't exist before. Now they do. And so while in you know, my dreams the Hurricanes would be the you know, marquee program that every top-shelf player wanted to play for and, more importantly, that every young player wanted to play for, uh, regardless of you know, their skill level, I mean, yeah, I mean, that would be a dream, but it's not realistic. And uh, you know, looking at what's happened, uh, there's way more kids playing lacrosse now than, than I thought would be the case at this stage. Do you see... Do you ever envision reconstituting the Hurricanes, maybe in some other form, or taking? Uh, I, can that be used or reused? I mean, or, or is it just not not an interest? Uh, well, I think there, uh, there's, well, to be blunt, there's not really an interest on my part. Yeah, it was exhausting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and and frankly, you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, but running the Hurricanes was way more stressful than uh, than my professional life. Um, and so I was ambivalent to have it uh, to have it go, but it was ready, you know, to to have it go. Um, the uh, uh, I think it would be really hard um, to get it back again. Um, you, know, you can you know, the closest things um, for a number of years when uh, Jerry Byrne was running the T ninety nine camp up in Dallas. Yep. Um, you know, he and I are, are friends and. Uh, he had asked me to organize a Houston All-Star team to come up and play a Dallas All-Star team the night before the T99 camp while all these college coaches were there. And so that would had a very similar feel to it for me where I'd be calling all these, I'd get the all-district list, I'd know a number of the coaches, I'd be calling the coaches, calling the parents, calling the kids, assemble you know 20 kids to go up and play in that All-Star game in, in uh, Dallas. But that would be just one, one night. Um, and I had to make clear with each of those that, no, I'm not trying to steal you from your, from your coach's summer program. Or if I'm talking to you know, anonymous high school coach you know, about recommendations for the kids, no, I'm not trying to get them to sign up for the Hurricanes or another program. It's just one night. Right. You know, we'll send them uh, you know, and have them, uh, have them go back. So, uh, so that was probably... Uh, uh, probably the closest, you know, to that. The uh, you mentioned Drew Webb a couple times, right? And you know, for me and in my brain, right, when I think of you, the two things I think of are Hurricanes and Sevens. Mm -hmm. right? Sure. So, tell me a little bit about your history with Drew, and a little yep. bit about how the Sevens tournament came about initially. Okay. So uh, it's a subject of you know, great joy and sorrow. Um, so Drew was really the first high-level Division I recruit out of Houston, the first one who made the national leaderboards for recruits from non-traditional areas. Um, and so he was recruited. He was valedictorian at Episcopal, you know, two or three-time All-State, two-time All-American, still holds scoring records, career scoring records. Uh, for the state, and went to Cornell to play, um, but uh, he struggled with depression. You know, when he was in high school, anxiety and depression 
when he uh, went to college. He actually was hospitalized at one point for uh, depression. Um, but he was also a, an award-winning uh, author, you know, when he was there. Um, you know, you know Dean's List you know, student, uh, all Eagle Scout before he went there. I mean, he was just the kind of kid on paper where it looked like he had everything, except he had this, um, you know, this mental health issue that he battled in the background, unbeknownst to most people. Um, and it, became, it came to the fore when he had to uh, take a brief leave uh, from Cornell because being hospitalized with a, you know, a fairly severe case. Um, but he still played four years, Ivy League championship, Final Four, NCAA Final Four, um, and uh, graduated, came back to Houston, and that's when I snagged him to become the first Hurricanes coach. Uh, Drew was a very charismatic, passionate, hilarious guy. Kids adored him. Um, he was the leader of the three coaches. Um, and then, uh, coincidentally or not, he decided to switch careers um, and uh, go pre-med. And uh, while he went back to Penn to complete the pre-med requirements, here's some biology, biochemistry, that sort of stuff that is an English major he didn't uh, have. Uh, while in Philadelphia, he committed suicide. And so in the spring of 2010, uh, he, he killed himself in Philadelphia. Um, and Drew was one of those guys who, when he, even if you weren't looking at the door, you knew when he came in the room. You could just feel just feel his presence. He had that kind of energy, that kind of charisma. And the kids in the hurricane program just loved him. You know, the oldest kids, the youngest kids, they just uh, just adored him. Uh, and everybody knew him in the lacrosse community in part of his person because of his personality, but also but in part just because of uh, what he meant to the Houston lacrosse scene. Um, so uh, when he uh, when he died, you know it really shook the community. and so, the you know, there were questions about what do we do to honor Drew? Do we do a, uh, a fundraiser? Do we do a scholarship? Do we name an award after him? Do you know what do we do? And uh, you know, some some of the other Hurricane parents um, thought, well, let's let's just have a lacrosse tournament. And being entirely naive in what that actually meant, we thought it'd be you know, reserve a few fields, hire a few refs, it'll be fun, get a few lacrosse balls, and we'll go play lacrosse. Well, um, well, it became a much bigger deal. And uh, so when I grew up, you know, we played short fields all the time, you know, either six on six, seven on seven. Uh, Drew was always number seven. And so we thought, hey, play seven on seven in honor of number seven. And so we, uh, you know, we set it up at the South Campus Fields uh, the, first, uh, the first event or the first year um, and just, you know, announced the, uh, you know, the, the format. And we figured there'd be, I don't know, maybe 20 teams, 30 teams. We had, uh, well, we had to cap it right around 80 teams. There just wasn't field space for more. Um, and so that became uh, this sevens for seven uh, tournament. Play seven on seven, four number seven. But the most remarkable part of the story, um, either, there's two other, there's two sides to it. So Drew played on a, on a, team at Cornell that was uh, generational. I mean, there were, you know, 
if you were a one-time All-American, you were like on the bottom of the depth chart. It was unbelievable. You know, these guys, the Tuarton winner uh, you know, was there, uh, multiple Team USA guys. Um, and so those guys, Drew's friends, came down to Houston and played. And they came down and played for uh, a number of years. And it was, it was frankly ridiculous to see them play against you know, local club lacrosse players um, when, you know, how many Team USA helmets are there running around out there? You know, and, you know, these guys had jobs and families and you know, professional lacrosse commitments, and, but they would come down and they'd tell Drew Webb stories and they'd play ball. And um, it, was just, uh, it was just amazing. You, know, you could see uh, you know, seemingly every spectator would blow off the other games going on and go watch these guys when they played. Uh, and it was like watching, you know, for my generation, you remember the Harlem Globetrotters, who was just more of a show than an actual game of basketball. It was like that, you know, yeah, with, yeah. with those guys. Matt Striebel, who wasn't even a Cornell guy, as a Princeton guy, on Team USA four times uh, would come and play. Uh, but the coolest thing, and uh, yeah, I still can't believe he would do this, um, and you know, I get emotional when I talk about it, so... Uh, when we were organizing this little lacrosse tournament, it was September, and I get a phone call or an email. Hey, uh, I saw what you're doing on Inside Lacrosse. I'd love to participate. Um, you know, signature on the bottom. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm getting all these emails. People want to volunteer. People, you know, who have friends or family members with depression want to come out and support. And so I didn't think too much of it. And I'm like, oh, hey, cool. You know, let me know what you'd like to do. You're happy to have you. He goes, well, I'm in Africa on a mission trip right now. Um, then I go back to school, you know, first part of the year. I think I can come. I love to participate. I'll play. I'll host a clinic, you know, whatever you want. And I'm like, host a clinic? You know, who is this guy? And so uh, then he says, like another follow-up email, basically the same day, he says, I've had some experience with depression. You know, this cause is near and dear to my heart. So uh, I go home that night, and Michael, my older son, uh, you know, part of the lacrosse world, of course, and uh, I ask him, Michael, you know, do you know who Ryan Flanagan is? And he's, he's like, Ryan Flanagan? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, this guy, Ryan Flanagan, he's been emailing me from Africa. Can you believe Africa? And he wants to come to the tournament and host a clinic. You know, what, you know, what do you think? He goes, Dad, Google him. And so I'm like, oh, duh. Yeah, so I Google him. And Ryan had just had the pre prior season, had been named the Defenseman of the Year in Division One, ended up being, I think, a three-time All-American at uh, uh, North Carolina, continues to play professional lacrosse. Um, and Ryan Flanagan wanted to come to our little tournament. And so he came and he hosted a clinic the night before with Striebel. Um, I remember that clinic. Do you? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, it was, it was well attended. And, you know, and then the next day, uh, during the tournament, we had set it up because it wasn't just play lacrosse. It was try to get a message across that, you know, even the biggest and strongest of us can have you know, mental health issues. Uh, and it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a character flaw. Um, it's like having diabetes or some other disease. And so at the middle, of the, the middle of the day, we would stop the games, and then we'd have giveaways and trivia contests and that sort of stuff. And Flanagan gets up there on the podium, and there's hundreds of mostly young kids you know, in there in this 
big like wedding type tent and you know, he starts talking and he introduces himself and I'm paraphrasing here but essentially he said you know I'm Ryan Flanagan I'm the defenseman of the year I'm an all-american um, I'm six foot four 225 pounds and I'm the best collegiate defenseman in the country and I have depression couldn't believe it could not believe it. To this day, I cannot believe it. And the place went silent. All these kids who've been chattering and laughing, they just went silent. And you could see the expression on their faces like, oh my God, this guy who's essentially a lacrosse god, for lack of a better term, is admitting publicly that he has depression and it doesn't make him a bad guy, it doesn't make him a weak guy, and it doesn't mean, it doesn't make anybody that has depression any of those things. It's, and sometimes you just need to be, you know, if, if you think your friend is struggling with something, being his friend is probably the best thing you can do for him. And it was stunning um, that he was willing to, to do that. Didn't, didn't do it because I asked him to. He volunteered to do that. And um, you know, we had parents coming up to us uh, during the course of the day saying, thank you so much. Now I have a way to talk about this with my son. I'm worried about my son. Uh, and now I can talk with him. It's an, it's an, it's an entry point into you know, that topic. Um, and uh, the response was just phenomenal. And Ryan would come. He'd come pretty much every year until just a few years ago. Um, and you know the Cornell guys adopted him. He became an honorary Cornell guy. They let him wear a Cornell T-shirt. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, he continues to support uh, the the program. You know the you know, a lot of people don't know this, but the seventh uh, the seventh for seven tournament won a national award for uh, service in the name of mental health, community mental health. And, really? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've known that. Yeah. Yeah. And. So you know, it was, uh, the 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 Houston chapter of this national organization was presenting the Houston level award. There's a series of regions around the country, and Flanagan flew in to accept the award. Yeah, so this guy he's a successful banker. He's founder of the PLL, along with um, along with Rabel. Um, yeah, he's killing it professionally. He runs a successful youth program in, in Charlotte. Um, and he's like, yeah, I'll come. And he just hops on a plane, flies in, accepts the awards, says a few words, photo op, doc, I got to go. And then poof, you know, he's gone. But then he comes back for the tournament. He didn't come last year. Um, but, uh, you know, just, just people like that, you know. And when I talked to my wife about lacrosse and, and you know, you know, she didn't grow up in a lacrosse family, but our kids did, and you know, she's part of one now. And I talked to her about how, you know, lacrosse has given us so much. You know, the it changed my life in college. You know, just a walk-on. You know, and playing four years on a nationally ranked team, meeting all these guys, Coach Moran. Um, you know, coming to Houston, meeting guys like you know the ones we've talked about. You. Know, uh, playing club lacrosse with them, uh, getting into the coaching world, our kids getting involved in this, meeting guys like these Cornell guys that just come down and play together, and then they disperse back to the four corners of the country. And then guys like Ryan Flanagan. It's just unbelievable. You know, what, a, what a great universe lacrosse exists in. Yeah, that was – well, I, I love that the stories about sevens because I was at, I was at that clinic. Mm -hmm. I was in the tent – when he when he when he did when that he did that yeah right I was there yeah yeah it was powerful the fact that he was so open about it right mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was just just crazy stuff I mean 
perhaps I should choose a better term, but um, you know, the uh, um, you know, the the you know, the lacrosse world is still small enough where you can be on a plane and you might see a tag on a guy's bag that says something about lacrosse, and you start talking to him, and immediately there's a con- there's a connection. Right. It's different than baseball, basketball, football. There's still that sense of we're a we're a subsection of the athletic world. That we're not a tribe, but we're we have a fam a familial connection um, through the sport of lacrosse. As it gets bigger and more corporate, that I think that's fading a little bit. Um, but it still it still exists, and you know, in the earlier hurricane days, or even the the Hylax Hornet days, you know, at the end, you know, the the, the team banquet at the end, or the team dinner, you know, at the end of the at the end of the season, I can remember uh, Proudy and I talking to uh, we were at, at the Sullivan's house, um, and uh, talking to all these you know all these parents who really didn't know much about lacrosse it was just another sport for their kid and talking with them and their kids and saying you are now now part of a family it's a large family uh, but it's still a family that shares a bond and you can go anywhere in the world and find another lacrosse player and you will have something in common there's a link a respectful link there that's awesome what um so seven's Continuing strong still, right? Yeah, you know, this is the 10th year, I think. Um, And with the help of guys like you who give their time uh, for nothing other than love of the game and appreciation for the cause. Um, You know, we have guys like Scott Pryor, whose son son or sons played at Houston Christian. No real direct connection to the webs comes out every year, buses, but you know, the day before and the day of. The guys like the Priors, you know, the Laleys, the Donnellys, uh, the Owens, um, you know, the Finneys, um, you know, the, these families that come out and support it. And every year we, we cut off the number of teams. You know, it sells out every year. Um, and uh, it's always a lot of fun. You know, we try to imbue a, a culture of the event of this is a fun event. It's not a, you know, we have to win event. Um, sometimes it gets lost, especially at the younger levels, I hate yeah, to say. Yeah, sure. uh, the youth levels are where that's lost the most. Um, but you know, we try to keep the spirit of uh, Drew loved to laugh. He would love to hear laughter from the lacrosse fields. Not fighting, not cursing, uh, just laughter and the joy of playing a great game with other like-minded people. That's awesome. Great stories. What, um, beyond Sevens, do you see yourself doing anything different, more new, locally in the lacrosse community in the future? Well, you know, um, I, I, I coached an AOS's middle school team for three or four years. Um, two years while my son was there, and I enjoyed it so much I kept doing it even after he had moved on. Uh, I could see myself getting back into coaching. Um, I have enough gray hair now where I don't know if I would be accepted you know, by, uh, uh, by the kids. Um, but, you know, I really enjoyed it, and it's, it's, it's a ton of fun. Um, it's, it's, you know, 
ego reinforcement when your team does well, and then it's humiliating when they don't. And uh, I'll tell you flat okay. out, you know, my first couple years, in, in two years, we, you know, those boys lost one game. And I started to think of myself as, I know what I'm doing. I can coach this game. The next two years, so, we, so they lost one game the first two years. The next two years, we won one game. And I thought, maybe I don't know what the heck I'm doing here. So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, but you know, I, sure, I sure enjoyed it. And as, uh, you know, I, I, as I think about you know, ratcheting back a bit in my practice, then I could see myself you know, getting back youth coaching. I don't think I'd want to be at the high school level. Yeah, that's awesome. Man, I appreciate you having me out. Hey, it's fun. That was a blast. So. Yeah, that's a good time. Anything else you wanted to touch on, discuss? You know, you're uh, interested in what you think, having spoken to, what, 18 people or so? Yep. Um, what you think about Texas lacrosse, Houston lacrosse, mostly at the scholastic level? I mean, I have my thoughts on it, but you know, you've now got this breadth of opinion and experience. Where, where do you think it is and where is it going to go? Yeah, you know, so I tried to explain this to somebody the other day. I said it. Um, at the same time, during this, all these discussions I've had, I've become probably a little more pessimistic about the state of the sport in general, mm -hmm. in broad strokes. But I've bumped into all these really good people, right, who are doing yeah. really tremendous things. So in the macro, eh, sanctioned school sport, you know, blah, 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 governance, you know, the youth organization is falling apart. Okay, right? But the reality is... There's still Rich Moses and David Cones and Jeremy Platts, right? And Jordan McGarry's, right? And, and Mike Brand. These guys are out there, irrespective of governance or leagues or whatever. They're out there doing a lot of really good stuff. And they're affecting a lot of, a lot of kids positively, right? So, yeah, for me, it's, it's this really weird dichotomy of I'm just frustrated with the governance and frustrated with the organizational aspects. But knowing that there's really good people out there, right? That's, yeah. that's, that's been the weirdest part of it. I expected to be, unfortunately, I think I expected to be a little more disappointed, <laughs> right? Unfortunately, but, I'm not but, as disappointed as but, I thought I would be. But because, because I, I was coming at it like from this governance and in this grand organizational perspective, right? Realizing now, I'm not sure that matters. I'm not sure that matters because you talk to these coaches, you're a perfect example, right? What you did with the Hurricanes, what you've done with Sevens. There's people who just go out there because they love it and they love impacting kids, right? And, and they want to do right by the game and they're going to do that no matter what. Whether U.S. Lacrosse is in here helping them or whether THSLL gives a darn about how it's organized, right? Yeah, that's... That's been the most interesting part for me, for sure. Yeah, I think you know, what I hear in that is the thread of the beauty of the game and the fabric of the lacrosse community on an individual level is awesome. Yep. Like a lot of things, when it starts to get organized and kind of quote air quotes here, the grown-ups get involved, uh, then something can be lost. Yep. Uh, so... You know, I look at it as the game is it's struggling to mature. You know, does does it is it really best served to become like baseball, 
or soccer, where it's hyper-organized, it's, it's become, you know, it's a financial, it's a product. You know, with those, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's a better way of putting it, an economy uh, of it. Um, or would that subtract from the culture of the game? And from my era, I'm 59 years old. I graduated from high school in 1978. The corporatization of lacrosse um, changes the, the texture of the game, to me, in a negative way. However, for the game to thrive, if, if, you, if you happen to think that's important, is it important that there's a bunch of uh, you know, lacrosse-specific athletic shoes or equipment companies? How many stick companies do we need? How many uh, you know, helmet and equipment companies do we need I mean, for the game to thrive, for there to be um, you know, enough financial support at the collegiate level, uh, you know, at the pro level? Well, then it's got to be monetized if right. that's truly the goal. Uh, if it's more kind of rugby-esque where it's, hey, let's all go play and have a great time and not really worry about it, well, that's a different, a different goal. But I, I think that just by nature of our national culture, it's going to gradually go down the soccer, baseball. Uh, yeah, it's going to be consumed, right, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Or fortunately, or fortunately, yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> it's hard, hard to, you know, hard to know whether it's going to be better or worse, but it will be different. I mean, I, I still go back, and I've had this discussion with multiple people that part of the problem too is I run into so many parents who don't see value unless there's a dollar sign associated with it. Right. So when you advertise open run, pickup game, whatever it is, right, unless there's admission. In a uniform, right? There's it's it's not taken as seriously when you and I both know those that unstructured play, those pickup games. That's where it's at. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a tremendous value of that, but a value that isn't really realized until later. You know, and um, you know the uh, you know, and the other part of it is you know well is that going to get my son a scholarship? Is that going to you know, lead to you know you know, college admissions, um, and so you know, there's that whole world of you know, um, UIL certification or not, or you know, do you need you know, sanctioned NCAA, not MCLA, but NCAA teams in Texas to you know, grow kids? You know, one of the most frustrating things, perhaps, you know, without dwelling on it too deeply, perhaps the most frustrating chapter of my lacrosse history was watching kids at my son's high school stop playing before their senior year because they didn't want to interfere with their spring break trips and graduation parties. And these are kids that have played lacrosse forever that are good players right. who, because they're not going to play in college, are like, eh, you know, I think uh, I'd rather go to, to Cabo, you know, that sort of thing. And uh, you know, that was something that I struggled struggled with and still do to, to think of, but it's it's just the nature of the game in Texas right now, and I don't know the, the way to change it or if it even should be changed. You know, if, it, if it's a game that you play because you love, well, if you're not going to love it, maybe don't play it. So, right. Um, right. So um, anyway, you know, it is, it is interesting to see. It is gratifying to see, you know, the big the clubs pop up and become big and successful and strong. Um, and by successful, I mean inspiring kids to want to come back and play the next year. Uh, to me, that's success at the youth level. Right. It's not winning the tournament. It's 
kids having fun and coming back the next year because they want to keep playing. Man, man, thanks again. My pleasure, man. Thanks for, thanks for the effort. <laughs>